Good afternoon and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast, episode number five. My name is Pete Fletcher, a.k.a. Pedro Arrow, and joining me as always is... That tip-top techie and all-round chipper chap, Glenn Sizemore. Hey, Glenn, how you doing? I love that one. Who is that? Who sent that to us? That is Ed Morgan, a member of the NetApp A-Team, something we'll be talking about in a little bit. <laughs> oh, that dude's awesome. I love it. Oh, yeah, he's awesome. Sitting next to Glenn is Mr. Sully the Monster, Andrew Sullivan. How are you, sir? Very well. Thank you, Pete. How are you today? Doing good. Sitting next to Sully is a good friend of ours here at NetApp, Mr. Justin Parisi. You may know him on Twitter as NFS Dude Abides. Justin, welcome to the show. Hello. So tell me something. What the heck does NFS Dude Abides mean? Where did you get that? Yeah, so um, when I started my Twitter account, I tried to say something with NetApp in it. I was going to do NAS Dude Abides, and I was like, you know what? Let's just do NFS. Let's just go all in. <laughs> All in. So Dude Abides is a reference to the great uh, movie by the Coen brothers, The Big Lebowski. Yeah. If you've never seen it, you should. Nice. Um, but yeah, so that's that's where the reference comes in. Nice. Speaking speaking of big things, guys, you know, it's Friday. It's been a pretty crazy week. <laughs> I'm exhausted. Yeah. That keynote, wow. I don't know what you're talking about. I was in bed at uh, at 8 o'clock every night. I got a solid 12 hours of sleep. I uh, I did not drink a drop of alcohol. So, so you weren't with me when we came crawling in at 2.30? It was a very pious week. I it was a very pious week. Yeah. Yeah. I just sat in the hotel room and watched reruns of The Price is Right. That, that, sound, that sounds like a way better plan than what I had. Yeah, I should have done that. Wait, Bob Barker or Drew Carey? Both. Nice. I feel like I'm in a Twilight Zone right now. Did you guys go to VMworld already? Uh, how did you know? Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> as far as I'm concerned, it's the week before VMworld. I'm getting on a plane tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, bright and early at 6 a.m. Yeah, yeah, so for all the listeners, uh, we will have our, our, our big... Uh, we've, of course, been releasing our daily recaps throughout the week, so we've been keeping you up to date. Uh, you already know this, but we're actually recording this episode right before we get on the airplane. We want to make sure you have an episode next week, even though we're going to be swamped with customers, so we won't have time. So nothing that happened at VMworld will be covered in this episode. We will cover that next week. I was going to be pissed that I was the only one of us that doesn't have this extra ability in life to like transport into the future. That, that oh, would have been awesome. Uh, I can totally try it. So, so let's go ahead and call some nonsense. I'm going to call, uh, let's see, uh, Kanye is going to come out at the keynote. And he's just going to yell, tear what, as little John goes, yeah! And then that's going to be the end. See, what actually happened was we went to the real VM world, and you get to go to the fake one next week. Nice. All right. Well, before we dive into the, the NFS conversation, which I'm very interested in, I also want to talk about the A-Team. And the reason I want to ask you, Justin, is because I know that you are sort of tied to that A-Team uh, group pretty pretty closely. So why don't you start by sharing with the rest of the audience what exactly is the A-Team and how are you involved with that group? Right. So so the NetApp A-Team is a social media, um, I guess, club, so to speak, kind of like the experts, kind of like the Cisco champions, where we have non-NetApp employees that are partners or customers that are advocates of NetApp. So what you're actually getting is you're getting a positive NetApp story from people that don't get paid by NetApp, right? They're not getting paid by NetApp to say these things. They actually genuinely love the product. You know, we do too, but we also get paid, so there's some sort of conflict of interest yeah. and impropriety there. Sure. 
Um, so what they do is they write blogs, they tweet, um, they attend conferences, they attend field days, and um, they get information from NetApp about the products, about the releases that are coming out so that they can talk about them intelligently with their customers um, and with each other and with the rest of social media. Um, they are also kind of our, I guess they're our, um, our guardians, right? So when, yeah. when somebody's out there bad-mouthing NetApp, you know, whether it's, you know, somebody on Twitter or somebody writing a blog post or an article out there, they're they're the ones that can go in there and, and really speak to what NetApp is and protect NetApp without NetApp having to get involved. Because as, as a company, we, we tend to try to keep our head above water. We try to stay out of it because we want to focus on the positivity of NetApp as a product as opposed to getting into pissing contests with, uh, with our competitors and with other people in the, in the industry. They're also, you know... D- like, let's be honest about this. Like, they're, they're also some of our staunchest critics. Like, they, they, they are oh, yeah. not shy. Those guys, we bring them in yeah. and we'll, we'll ask them for feedback. And holy cow, do they not hold back? I, I love it. Every time they have a so, so we have a Slack channel we talk in, and every time somebody says something that's critical, I'm like, let's get them talking to the product managers. Yep. Come on in here. Let's talk. Because I, I, want, I want them raked over the coals and understanding the pain that our partners and our customers are feeling. Because I, I think that that's what's missing sometimes from our overall messaging is that we don't understand the bad things that happen necessarily. We only get to see the good things. The customer's coming to us saying, I really like that idea. But when the actual implementation takes place, we, we really need to understand where the pains are and what we can improve on the next releases to make things better. Oh, yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a pretty big group of different personalities, actually different professionals. Some of them work in different areas. Right. Uh, so you get a really good group. And, and, and like Glenn said, they are edgy, man. I've been in a couple of meetings with them, thank, thankfully just being like a fly on the wall. Uh, and just listening to what the way they speak to to some of the product managers and stuff, and they don't hold back, man. They will tell you this needs to be there. We've been waiting for this, and uh, I think they keep the PMs and the and the, the whole NetApp leadership pretty honest. I love that. Yeah, for sure. So, Justin, you work at NetApp. Why are you an advocate? Like, how how do you how do you tie into this team? Right. So, um, around last year, Insight timeframe, I wanted to try to draw more people into my sessions. So I said, you know, social media might be a good way of doing that. So I started getting involved more with social media, getting involved with Twitter. And I said, well, how can I use this to help the company as a whole? So I started looking into advocacy programs and looking into the ambassador program for NetApp. And I came across the A-Team. I said, oh, what's this? So I started doing some digging, found out that Sam Moulton runs the A-Team. Um, if, you know, she's, she's the contact point. So I started talking to her about becoming a technical advisor. And basically my role is kind of a liaison between them and anyone in NetApp. So if they have a support issue, I say, all right, let me get you in touch with the support guys that I know. So I go to my old support routes and I find somebody there that can help them. If they have a product issue, I say, oh, let's get those product managers on the phone. And I work with Sam to try to set up a call with the product managers and that sort of thing. So any in any area I can help, even if it's you know a technical issue that I can actually address for them, I'll try to do that. So I, I'm really just there to kind of as a backbone for their overall organization, try to support them the best I can. Yeah, the 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 last thing that I would add to the to the A team kind of uh, intro here is, uh, in case you guys are out there wondering, like, well, okay, well, this sounds cool. I like NetApp. How do I become part of this? Uh, the 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 short version is just keep doing what you do, right? If you're blogging, keep blogging. If you're if you're a Twitter guy, use Twitter. Instagram, use Instagram. Whatever you do, do what you do. Sam is constantly you know, out there monitoring the, the internet. And when she finds intelligent people who are doing cool things and, and promoting NetApp, then she reaches out to them and, and asks if they would like to, to join the A-team. This is an invite-only thing. There is no application. There is no send an email here to apply. Just do what you do, and, and we'll notice. 
Yeah, and, and unlike other programs that are out there, like VXBird and Cisco Champions, there, there's not a lot of that promoted tweet stuff. There's not a lot of this required blogging stuff. Yeah, but, we don't do that stuff. But but the, the thing is, is the way you get noticed is through tweeting about NetApp, through blogging about NetApp, making sure that you're using hashtags when you're at, at you know conferences, that sort of thing. And that'll get you noticed, and that'll get you on the on the map for Sam to say, "Oh, let me let me evaluate and see what this person's talking about." Sure. Yeah. And that being said, you know, all, all four of us are uh, Twitter users, so we are happy to uh, bring attention to anybody who wants to create content, and and we're we love spreading it out, right? And making sure that the the world is aware of the great things that not only our A team uh, members are doing, but just the community in in general. That's right. And, and so we, as the podcast, we're going to actually start doing. This is something that Nick started uh, uh, about a two, two, three months ago. He started an A team segment uh, where we would interview some of the A team guys, and so we want to keep doing that. I think it's a great idea. These guys have really good stories. Uh, they're in the field. You know, they're they're actually doing this stuff, and so they've got tons of great input. We're definitely going to have the A team guys in to redo some of these segments that we started a few months back, and uh, look forward to those. Moving on. NFS Due to Bides is here to talk about NFS. And so but tell me a little bit about NFS. Right. So um, NFS itself is the kind of Linuxy side of the NAS environments. So NAS itself is a file-based, network-attached storage uh, protocol where we are able to access a subset of files in a single location from multiple clients. So that, you know, in NAS environments, you can do that from Windows with SIFs or SMB. And in Linux environments, you generally use something like NFS. Now, there are instances where you can do uh, NFS on Windows or you can do SIFs on uh, Linux. Yeah. But generally speaking, that's, that's the, the, the flow of it right there. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about the difference between NFS and, and SMB or SIFs? So it's funny because, I mean, while there are protocol differences, they're inherently alike. I mean, you're making a TCP connection with a client. You're going to a server. Your server and the client are talking to negotiate protocol versions, you know, highest supported versions available. You, there's some authentication involved. And then there is a connection through uh, a file handle, and then you start writing or reading your data. So ultimately, they're, and as the, the protocols mature, they are becoming more and more alike. So early SMB, SMB1 yeah. versus like NFS v3, really different. But now NFS v4.1 with the integrated locking and the stateful connections and SIFS SMB3 where they're starting to make the disruption less when you have failovers is they're becoming converged. And I've, and I've always felt that these two protocols are eventually going to kind of become some sort of Voltron. Right? Oh, <laughs> man. Talk about a crazy future. Like we just get like some new protocol that replaces SMB and NFS and there's just one that that, that ruins them all. Yes. That's, that's something to think about. Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong, but NetApp started as an NFS appliance, right? right? Isn't NFS yeah. our, our, our deep roots of where we began? That was our bread and butter when we first started. And, and because of that, NetApp is a integral part of the NFS standard. So we write a lot of the standards, the RFCs, which is the request for comments. Um, they're run by the Internet, uh, it was IETF, uh, yeah. right. engineering, yeah. whatever. So you go to the RFC to find out the standards. Virtually every storage company that does NFS that's worth their salt is going to follow these standards because you'd be stupid not to follow the standard. Because once somebody starts doing something that's not standard, they're going to call you out on it. Yeah. So standardization is there for a reason, and, and we follow that. We write some of the standards. We help develop some of the protocols. We still have people that run... Uh, Linux development here. They, they they actually do some Linux development, NFS development here. So um, we're we're one of the leaders in the protocol stack itself. 
All right, so Justin, before we deep dive in in what NFS looks like today, let's go ahead and rewind all the way back. Why don't, why don't we take an abbreviated history through the 20-some-odd years of NetApp in this protocol and, and just kind of give me the, the Cliff Notes version of, of where, how we got here. Right. So um, uh, Sun Microsystems invented NFS, uh, and then in 1985 they came out with V2, which is basically the first publicly available NFS version. Um, what we started finding with NFS v2 was that as file sizes grew and storage grew, that v2 was not going to cut it. It was 32-bit only, and you had a maximum file size of 2 gigs. So oh, if wow. you've ever downloaded a movie or something, you realize where that comes into into play, right? Oh, yeah. So um, so what happened was in, in uh, 95, v3 came out. It had 64-bit uh, support for files, so you could get very large files. In fact, the file sizes in v3 often exceed the supported file sizes in their storage environments. So, for example, ONTAP and Waffle only support 16 terabyte files. V3 can extend past that if needed. Um, so it, it, it's future-proof in terms of file sizes because, you know, in, when V2 came out, hard drives were, what, 200 megs? Yeah. So, you know, you had a ray group of, like, oh, I got a 100-gig aggregate. Woo! <laughs> right? Yeah, that doesn't work anymore. Um, so... Uh, V3 also gave us some better performance in V2. It, it had more integrated support with TCP. So v, when V2 was out, it was UDP only. They added uh, hooks into it to be TCP, but you know V3 is more suited for that. Um, now, one of the downsides of V3 itself is that you have to open a bunch of ports to get it working. There's a port mapper port. There's a uh, mount port. There's the NFS port. There's the lock manager port. I mean, there's all these ports you have to open because there's ancillary things that work together with the protocol to make things work. So if you do any, any, any sort of locking with V3, it's run out of NLM, which is a network lock manager. So you actually have to um, ha open another port for that. And the problem with that is when something happens, such as an Oracle database, let's say your Oracle database goes down and you were running it over NFS, those locks don't go away because the application over NFS doesn't understand those locks are there because it's handled by NLM. So you have to actually go in and manually clean up all these locks to get the database restarted properly. Oh, that sounds fun. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's fantastic. And this is a common problem across all vendors, right? I mean, this is something that we see a lot with NFS v3 and databases. So with v4, what they've done is they've integrated the locking into the protocol. They've removed all these extra ancillary ports and integrated it into one port. So it's firewall friendly. So you have port 2049. You go over NFS. It, you know, when you do that, when you mount, it goes through over 2049. You do your file handle collection and your reads and writes all over the same port. Um, they've also added more security of v4 than v3 with with V3, it was really easy to spoof an ID. Mm -hmm. All you had to do was say, uh, you know, user add this user, and you're, you're in. You have access, right? With V4, there's this concept of domain string matching. So your client has to have a domain ID that it maps into, and the server has to have that same domain ID, and those usernames have to match exactly, you know, case-sensitive and everything. So that adds another layer of security. If you don't match up, you end up with the nobody-nobody user, and then you get no access. Um, the other security uh, feature that V4 integrated or added was it integrated uh, support with Kerberos. So with V3, you could do Kerberos, but you were only Kerberizing the NFS portion. You weren't Kerberizing NLM and all the other ancillary stuff. So oh, interesting. It wasn't okay. truly secure. Yeah. V4, since it's all integrated and all in the same stack, you Kerberize that, you Kerberize everything. Yeah, so I know most of the, uh, I guess, the, the younger generation of administrators, those who are probably 30 and under, Right, they only know NFS from the the perspective, or the majority of them only know NF NFS from the perspective of VMware, right? Where where we've been dealing with 
locks and things of that nature on lost data stores for a long time. So, right, right. Yeah, I, I think, uh, and I'm sure you can talk about this in much more detail than I can, right? VMware adding NFS 4.1 support is interesting for that reason alone. Well, we'll get to that. Let's not fast forward too much. Yeah, he says those young administrators. He's 31. Stop, <laughs> stop stealing my thunder, man. Yeah, I'm not 31. I'm 33. So, so that brings us up to uh, NFS 4.1 or NFS 4. Right. Uh, so NFS 4 came about in 2000. Uh, it's defined in RFC 2010. Again, if you ever want to find out about these protocols, you go to the RFCs. Not 2010, 3010. Um, you go to the RFCs. You read about them. I mean, they're they're not fun reads. It's yeah. basically they they take a text file and they put it up on the internet. And it's like, oh, nice. And there's no diagrams or anything. But if you ever run into a problem and you think that something's not working the way you think it should, you can go to the RFC and see if it's actually standardized and working the way it's supposed to. Yeah, standards. I am I, such a big proponent of standards in, in all things, right? right? I want standards in my management interfaces. I want standards in my protocols. I hate one-off proprietary. It's just so hard to support. Yeah, and, and that comes back to, you know, the difference between SIFS and NFS or SIFS, SMB, and NSS. You know, Microsoft, they started writing a standard. Yeah. And then they just said, you know what, we're going to keep this to ourselves. And it, it's worked for them. But, you know, there's there's now been this movement you know, outside of Windows to create other SMB servers, whether it's Samba or whether it's this SMB client stuff, where it's kind of the same, but not really. And, and with NetApp, we do our, our own proprietary SIFS implementation ourselves. But we work closely with Microsoft to try to follow their implementation as closely as possible. But even then, sometimes they either forget to tell us things or because there's, there's nothing out there written down that we can all follow. Well, yeah, and, and, and that's – we'll get Mark in here, Mark Waldrop, right. the SIFS TME, and we'll do, we'll do one of these for SMB. So let's not, let's yeah. not go too deep in the SIFS yeah, side. Yeah, you're right, but, right. But that's – you know, people who are sitting there wondering, like, well, how come, you know, this feature is not there? Well, because we didn't know about it until Windows Server X shipped – like we didn't even know that thing existed, right? right. And, and I mean, there's a reason for that, but I yeah. mean, you know, it's just how it, how it is. Yep. Wasn't there an sense. XKCD about that? You know, the great thing about standards is that you can always make a new one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the big deal about 4.1? So 4.1 is interesting because if you read the spec and you think about what it actually is doing, it, it adds support for PNFS, which is parallel NFS. <laughs> Finally. And then if yeah, right. And then if you look at what PNFS is doing, you you start to say. That looks a lot like something I've seen before. Wait, is that is that cluster data on tap? <laughs> oh my goodness! So PNFS feels like it was written by NetApp or including NetApp for a clustered file system such as cluster data on tap, and you would not be completely incorrect. I mean, there was there was a lot of implementation done by NetApp, and we do have a lot of standards that we've added to the protocol itself with you know. In collaboration with other people, you know, we're not the only ones that we don't own it, right? We we've helped, so I mean, it is ideal for for cluster data on tap because what it actually does is it it takes your metadata path and splits it out. So metadata is going to be stuff like permissions, like I'm get adders, set adders, um, lists, that sort of thing, and it, and it moves it out to its own path. And then when we do actual data I/O, like reads and writes, it takes a localized path to whatever node your data resides on. Nice. So so. When you do that, you're able to take advantage of, of features that you know cluster data ONTAP offers, such as the NFS FAF path mechanism, where we take reads and writes and directly commit them to disk or bring them from disk, as opposed to trying to process them in some sort of you know arbitrary stack somewhere. Um, interesting to note that VMware, while they did come out with 4.1, they don't have PNFS support yet. So um, yeah. yeah, you know. It, it, let, 
we're we're out of VMworld now. We're, we're let's go ahead and move into the present. Right. Let's let's take a minute and just kind of talk about this. Like, so what what is the deal with NFS and VMware today? Because it's in this weird like middle half step. Yeah. So when it came out with vSphere six, I, I wrote up a blog post on it, and I was kind of asking questions like, you know, I can see why they did it, but I can you know, I'm wondering where certain things are and why they've gone in directions they've gone. So 4.1, they've added some support for things that are cool, but they didn't add PNFS, which I thought would be ideal for things like data stores on NFS, because right now with data stores on NFS, you have this you know kind of hodgepodge of you know I need data locality, but I have to also have a data you know a data lift or an IP address associated with it. So PNFS would solve a lot of those problems that we're seeing with implementing data stores on NFS. The other thing that I noticed about their V4 implementation is that they've added Kerberos support, but they've only added the weakest possible Kerberos you could add <laughs> right now, which is Des. Okay. You know, AES is out there. It's been out there for a while, and I, I mean I, I can't fault them too much because when we implemented Kerberos and CDOT, we went straight to Des and waited for AES and 8.3. But they had, you know, they had the kind of the, the advantage of prior history on their side. And they could see, oh, let me let me fix the mistakes that others may have made and implement it. But no, they, they went straight to the, you know, weak encryption that has been cracked in the 80s in less than a day. Okay, so NFS 4.1 with VMware, or NFS 4, it's 4, right? They don't actually support 4.1. Do I have that, or is it, or is it 4.1? Oh, that's the other funny part. So they do 4.1, but they don't support 4. What? Which is weird to me, but that it is what it is. Okay, so they support 4.1, but not the PNFS extension, right. and it's just the Kerberos, but not the AAS encryption. Right. Okay. So, so it's kind of a partial implementation of something. So, I mean, you know... Well, you know, I won't give them too much crap for that, though, because sometimes that's the reality of, of, of what it takes to, to ship a product, yeah, right? You, you got to... Sometimes you just can't get it in one bite, so you got to take half the bite and you ship something that, you know, addresses maybe, you know, a third of your customer base or, you know, a quarter of it. But then you go back and you do some more work and, and you iteratively build that up. So. Right, and, and from their perspective, I mean, they're not thinking in terms of, you know, a clustered file system because they run a different environment they they have their own yeah. thing they're doing right so i mean they're not thinking about that necessarily now i will say that we've worked closely with vmware trying to you know get them to kind of come to the dark side of uh pnfs but well in andrew's andrew's opinion right this was done uh, vmware's 4.1 implementation was primarily done for the authentication authorization piece right there's been enough customers that have had security concerns about what happens if somebody gains access to the nfs data store and things of that nature that you know the the four dot one implementation is helps to alleviate that. Des. I would say it solves it. Yeah, but it's Des. Des. It's not really it's not actually securing anything. Yes, but there's a difference between a a somebody. It's like people who download movies, right? There's there's the people who are going to do it regardless, and there's the people who do it because it's easy. If it's not easy, you're going to lose ninety percent of the of the people who are going to do it. But you're always going to have those people who, right? It, it's it doesn't matter how secure it is. Somebody can always, oh, yeah. always, yeah, that's true. Always get in, sure. right? So yes, is it a hundred percent solution? No. Is it an eighty percent solution? Maybe. Is it a sixty percent solution? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so what about uh, with cluster data on tap and our unique capability with the way that we layer in export rules on top of uh, our, our our data access and the the ability to whitelist clients uh, on on a network? Doesn't that can't can't we alleviate almost all of those concerns? Um, to an extent, right? I mean, so let's let's talk a little bit about how NFS works from a security perspective in general. When you when you mount to a server, mm -hmm. you're you're 
going to have to do an export check. And I compare this to SIF shares and share permissions. So basically, you're looking at who has access to even get to the share to begin with. In NFS, we do that based on clients, based on net groups, subnets. So yes, there is a level of security, but how hard is it to spoof an IP address? Yeah, that's true. Right? How hard does it become somebody on the network? So once you get past the export part, it tells you you know what you can and can't do when you're in that export, and, and it's upper layer traversal, right? So if, if I come into slash volume, I still have slash in that path, so I have to keep that in mind as well when I'm exporting because I need to at least allow read access to that path so I can traverse it. Once I get in there, I have my file level permission. So one thing that NFS v4 does better than NFS v3 is that it allows you to use access control lists or ACLs mm-hmm. on the files and folders where v3, they had they had the concept of POSIX ACLs, but we don't support that in, in ONTAP. But mostly what you see in the field with NFS v3 implementations is rewrite execute stuff, like 777, 755, 744, yep. that sort of stuff. Again, th- that's a security thing, but you're limited to you know, limiting who, the, who can access it via the owner or a group or then everyone else. Yeah. So there's no granularity to it. So you know, with exports and in, in, in how we allow access to clients, in 7MO, what we do is we had this exports file. Okay. Which people liked, but they had, there was two main problems I saw with the exports file in Seven Bone. For one, if you had thousands of volumes, you had thousands of lines in your export file, and if you're a storage admin, just try to manage that. Right? You sure, open that yeah. file up, and you're supporting it. Right? Like when I was in support, and I open up an export file that had thousands of lines in it. You know, good times. Good luck. Control F. Control F. Right. <laughs> so that's one part of it. The other part of it is in Seven Mode when I exported something. It went into memory. If I didn't write it into file and add it to that exports file, and yeah. then I did a maintenance, like I forgot about it six months later, we're going to upgrade on tap. And you upgrade it and reboot it. All of a sudden, oh, where's my exports? I can't access my mounts anymore, right? So what we've done in cluster data on tap, which is better, is first, we've simplified exports. Now, it sounds more complicated because we have new nomenclature. You're calling export policies, export rules. So what we've done is we've taken export policies, which are containers for our rules, and we put our rules inside these policies. And then we take these policies and we apply them to volumes. And what that allows us to do is we can take things that are duplicated in exports files from 7Mode. So in 7Mode, you had the auto-export feature. Mm-hmm. And all that would do is when you when you created a volume, it would add an, an automatic export, which is just read-write to everyone. Right. And a lot of autosports, I'd see that you know, it would be on hundreds of volumes. So instead of having hundreds of lines on my export file, I can do one policy, one rule, and I'm done. It's easier to manage, easier to maintain. The other benefit of cluster data on tap is that we take that exports file and we get rid of it. We don't do files anymore. We put it into a replicated database. There's tables that get written when you create your exports, when you mount your volumes, and they get replicated across the entire cluster. So you have export availability across every node in the cluster, which is up to 24 in NAS. So if I wanted a 24-node cluster, I could have my access to exports anywhere in that cluster. I don't have to worry about committing them to files after I do memory. I don't have to worry about when I reboot them being there or not. They're going to be there at all times until I get rid of them. Yeah, that's much better. Way better. Yeah. Now, I will admit, like, you know, I'm the Windows guy, right? So, you know, I'm not an NFS expert. I don't pretend to be. The only time I ever come across NFS is with VMware stuff. But but, uh, in the early days, you know, I did write... Project Shift, which connects NFS and SMB to do VMware to, to Hyper-V uh, migrations. And, and <laughs> you know, that, that was a learning curve for me. But it wasn't a big one, as you said. You know, it's just this little tiny bite of, oh, okay, so I create this policy, 
And inside the policy, I create my export rules, and then I can apply that policy at any point inside the junction of the namespace. So it's, it's, there's a couple layers of management that are there, but with the, the, those, those additional layers, it makes it way easier when you get to those big scale points, when you get to like that massive install, as you were saying. Yeah, and really what it was was a shift in thinking, right? You just had to, if you're adverse to change and you just want everything to be the same all the time, then you'll probably hate it. But I yeah. mean, <laughs> honestly, when you start getting used to it, and the people that come in that don't know 7 mode, they love it. They're like, yeah. oh, tab complete, sweet. I get them all my commands. I hear DBAs and storage guys are, are allergic to change. <laughs> yeah, that's the rumor. That's the, that's the word on the street. <laughs> yeah. Well, the best part I like about it is that it's safer because, like you said, you're not going to be dependent upon a file that may not have been written to memory, uh, and then when you reboot, you're down. So, yeah, it's certainly a lot more uh, secure. You should always practice safe NFS. <laughs> safe NFS. I like that. Well, all of us in this room uh, have been uh, frequent visitors to our executive briefing center, and customers are always asking us, uh, what protocol should I use? NFS, you know, the, the, the word on the street that NFS is certainly more simple. Uh, it's an easier protocol to use. But we get the question, should we use iSCSI? Should we be using NFS? And, and so what are some of the reasons somebody might choose those, uh, and particularly around performance uh, and, and simplicity? So one of the main things I see people using NFS for is file shares. So, I mean, it's used for other things. Well, let's start with file shares. So, one benefit that you have with NFS versus something like block-based like iSCSI or FCP yeah. is that you can do multi-protocol. So, if I wanted to access the same set of data with my Windows clients and my Linux clients, I can do that with cluster data on tap. With iSCSI, you're mounting that to a server and you've got a specific file system type that you're now dedicated to. When, with NAS, you, there's no file system type you're dedicated to. It's just agnostic across clients. So that's one benefit of using NAS or NFS versus something like iSCSI or FCP. Another, another thing that we've seen with NFS is that it, we see it, it generally works better for things like NFS data stores with VMware. I've heard stories that performance in general is better. I mean, I can't, I can't quantify it with numbers, so I'm not going to. Just anecdotally, I hear that. Um, databases, Oracle. I mean, Oracle recommends using DNFS specifically, but NFS, you know, in general for their databases. So, I mean, there are really good use cases for doing file-based NAS storage versus doing something block-based. You know, and then you factor in, you know, the ease of use. So, yeah, there's some things about NFS and NAS in general that can get tricky, but you don't have all these layers above NFS that you have to worry about with the host utilities kits and the SAN drivers and HBAs. You know, and, and HBAs can get expensive, right? I mean, you're, you're dealing with network cards that you already have in your servers anyway with NAS. With SAN, i got to add HBAs unless I'm doing iSCSI. Um, i got to start considering what drivers I'm installing. You know, am I supported in this whole big matrix of things? Um, there's no there's no set standard necessarily with SAN, so there are some benefits in ease of use and maintenance and management. Um, but you know, again, it's it's a it's a case by case basis. I mean, and it really comes down to what are your workload needs, what do you want out of your storage experience, and what do you need for your environment to make sure it works best for you. Is is uh, is there something that that you would just immediately be like, no, don't do that? Have you have you come across a customer who is like, here's what I'm trying to do with NFS, and your answer was no, that d stop. Um, <laughs> I try not to do that because I try to come up with like creative ways of thinking about things to do things. But I mean, in in general, you know, the, the, some of the biggest issues I see 
are just in the understanding of how to how to configure it. The export policies tr- trip people up a lot because what happens with a lot of times with export policies, what I see is they create an export policy and then they apply it to a volume, but they never added a rule. So no mm. rule, no access. And they're like, I can't get in. You know, I've, it's seeing things as easy as I have an enabled NFS. I mean, it's that's that's normally what gets me. Right. Normally, I'm like 20 minutes into troubleshooting and I realize that I just need to start the service. <laughs> yeah, you've, you've, you're banging out packet traces. You're yeah. like, why is it this connecting? Well, there were many moons ago. I wore an Exchange hat, and so there was a time where you could not use Exchange on NFS. I don't know if that's changed. I haven't been in the Exchange world for a while. Is that still the case, or are there, are there pro- applications yeah, where you can't yeah. use NFS? Yeah, that's still the case. So, so, and really, what people, I guess, where that applies most is when you have RDMs or VMs that run Exchange hosted on NFS data stores. And from what my understanding of that is, is you have to have block storage for Exchange to work with that specific configuration. And Glenn, you could probably yeah, it's it's it has nothing to do with like does it work? Are there problems? It's it's just about a supportability thing, right? Like the Exchange team at Microsoft has opted to not support this ecosystem in that way, uh, and they basically said, you know, you, you can run it on Hyper V over SMB in a VM. Uh, or you can connect traditional block storage like we've always told you to. Yeah, and I've heard it works just fine. There's, there's, yeah. if you go out and Google it, there's threads out there where people are arguing ad, ad nauseum yep. about this. Right? I mean, oh, we it have, works. it works. We have customers that 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 run it, yeah. and and they just choose to run unsupported. You know, that that's their choice, not one that that we necessarily recommend. Um, but but you know, you know, you can absolutely do it. It's it's a it, listen. It's it's a fight that we fought. We went and we tried to summit that mountain. We tried to. To run up to Redmond and be like, you guys should stop doing this. But you know, at the end of the day, that that one team has chosen. You know, this is the direction they want to go, and and it's their it's their product. So right. So uh, common issues. Let's keep going on that thread because it seemed like you had some more there. So uh, set up an implementation, uh, uh, assigning the export rule and or the export policy mm-hmm. without a rule assigned. Uh, failure to start the protocol. What, what what are some other common mistakes that people make? So with with V3, some of the common mistakes are more like export policies are populated with rules, or maybe I haven't mounted my junction in my namespace. One that commonly gets people is um, with cluster data on tap, we recommend having uh, load sharing mirrors for our VS root volumes. Mm-hmm. And the trick is you have to update those because... They act like regular snap mirrors in that if you don't update them, whatever you've added to the source doesn't get populated down to the destinations. And that includes when we create a volume. So when I create a volume, that essentially creates a folder within the namespace, which is mounted under slash. And if I don't update my LS mirror when I do that, I don't get to mount because the, the system doesn't think it exists right now. And so that, that's one that gets people a lot. So if you're using LS mirrors and NFS, you got to make sure those are updating on a schedule. Anytime you create a volume, go ahead and update that schedule right away. Push out an update to the LS mirror. Now, with NFS v3, you know, that's kind of where the, the issues end, right? I mean, it's mostly just access and understanding of the protocol and then this weird LS mirror thing. v4 is where it gets a little trickier because... You're, because when you add extra things like security and the, you know the integrated locking, then you add it a little more complexity because with v4 you have to have that ID domain string matching, mm-hmm. and that means if you have a user on your client named Justin, it has to have the user on the server named Justin, or they need to share a name service such as LDAP or NIS that has that particular name string in there as well. So if you're not doing that, you end up running into problems where you get nobody, nobody, and you can't get access, and you're trying to figure out why things aren't working. Something as simple as not c- configuring the domain string to be the same can break it. So that that's something you really have to consider when when you're using NFS v4 is, is you know, what's my underlying infrastructure? 
do I have things in place to have a common name service where I can source it out to all my clients and servers and make my life easier overall? So is there a particular scenario where, you know, for, for the customers out there, aside from the VMware workload that, that have just generic applications that, that currently are running over NFS, uh, they're they're running on V3 today. Maybe they're con- they're connected to a seven mode system. Uh, they're looking to do their migration and and they want to update the application. Besides just the Kerberos and enhanced security, is are, are there other inherent benefits? Should they should they actively be saying, hey, let's get this stuff on four one. Let's let's update to the latest version of the protocol. So um, one thing that f- the version four protocol brings that NFS V3 didn't have is it like a, we talked about how the you know, SMB and NFS protocols are converging. Yeah. Well, NFS v4 brings you compound calls. So you can put multiple calls in the same packet, just Ooh. like SMB2 did. Right. So SMB2 allowed us to take compound calls, and it reduces overall network traffic because you're not sending so many packets. You're sending bigger payload, but with 10 gig networks, who cares? Right? Yeah. So um, there's that. Then there's the integrated locking we talked about, where you no longer have this ancillary protocol that has no understanding of what's going on with the product, the NFS protocol itself. Where you know, if you have a lock that needs to be released, it's integrated now into V4. So there's a as a lease period. So just like if you lease a car, you have to give it back after a couple of years. With NFS V4, the locks you have to they have to be returned if they're not renewed after a certain period. So there's a grace period for these locks. So if a client goes down and they can't return the lock in a certain amount of time, it'll actually release that lock so it can be used again later. Uh, so last question for me. Uh, what about the inverse? Is there an exception where a client would be running NFS v3 uh, and would try to go to 4 or 4.1 and would need to go back to v3? Is there a use case where 3 is still superior? Generally, um, because of the statelessness of v3, and you're not having. I mean, V4 has to do more, right? There's more involved there. There's there's more. Yeah, you got a session in the protocol. There with V3, you had less disruption with failovers because of the statelessness, but you also had more risk because if something's in flight and it's not stateful, good luck trying to find it. So performance can be a consideration in some cases. The ability to survive failovers faster because V4 there is a time where you know you have just like SIFs and SMB, you have a little bit of a disruption when that happens. So, you know, there are use cases where people maybe don't need to move to V4 right away. Um, maybe the, the security isn't as important as the performance or the overall um, dis- non-disruptiveness of the protocol itself. So, it, it, it again, it's a it-depends scenario where what are you doing, what matters to you, and evaluate it closely. The other thing that people that, that stop people from going to V4 is the infrastructure, you know, that they don't have in place already. You know, I, I want I want to make sure I have the right infrastructure in place, my LDAP servers or my NIS servers where I can host all my identities. So if they don't have that in place, maybe they postpone that because they don't want to go to V4 and have to worry about all that up front. If you've got thousands of users, you don't want to populate that on, on local storage and password files. You want to be able to do it all centrally managed. What about cloud providers? Are they also using NFS? Do they offer the ability to... to, to use the protocol NFS, or are they going to roll your own like Amazon using a different protocol or something like that? All right. So there's there's two approaches to this. So first, you have the approach of Cloud ONTAP, which is, and I say first because that is the approach. No. So, <laughs> so but uh, yeah, so you have Cloud ONTAP, which operates just like regular old ONTAP, except cloud, right? And you can use NFS as a protocol there. Um, the other thing that we've, we've seen in the recent history, in, starting in April, was that Amazon uh, announced Elastic File Services, which is EFS, 
um, at their was it AWS Summit or yeah. So they announced it, and they're like, all right, we're going to do NFS V4, and they're only going to do V4 only right now. So I was like, all right, cool, let me go check this out. So I signed up for Amazon Web Services. I, I asked to be you know get an evaluation for EFS, and then I started playing with uh, AWS, and I was like, wait a minute. I can't get to EFS. And it seems like there's only a limited access to EFS right now, and it's it's very much in a pilot type of program. And I still have yet to be able to get access to do EFS. Now, I don't know if they're blacklisting me because they're like, hey, probably that's, that's the NFS guy. Don't let him <laughs> in. I just wanted to see it and see what it was like. But I can tell you that just using AWS was pretty easy. I mean, you spin up a VM and it's done, right? Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Now, where the concern comes in is, you know, I have to pay over the hour. You know, how much is this going to cost me? Is it worth what I'm doing? Is it secure? That sort of thing. And that's all, again, something you have to evaluate on your own. But as far as Amazon, they're they're offering NFS v4 support eventually, and you know, publicly to everyone. Right now, it's just kind of sequestered off into some like two regional sites in the Northwest. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's interesting. There, there's there's a use case for file based now that we haven't seen because before it was all like block based, um, object based stuff, yeah, mostly object, right? So I mean, and, you know, now they're now it's validating block based storage as as an act, viable cloud protocol, right? I mean, you're able to actually do file based stuff, whereas before people were kind of poo pooing it, like, ah, oh, files dead, files dead. And then they started using block out. They're like, oh, maybe files not dead yet. <laughs> Well, I think I, th- I think a lot of that just has to do with the, this this whole move to hybrid and and the part where enterprises are now engaged in and taking a hard look at service providers and public cloud and 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 figuring out what they want to run where. What when when it was a bunch of Web 2.0 companies and startups, yeah, everything's just using S3 object, right? Because that's the, how those right. applications work. If you're just Netflix, yeah, it's just it's all Glacier and, and object, and you're just you're building a CDN on top of EBS. Who cares, right? But when an enterprise starts moving their actual workloads and the applications that they depend on into the cloud, those apps were not written in the 2000s, right? Right. In a lot of cases, they haven't been touched in a long time, right. and, and they, they don't support these newer access methods. So if you want to m- move that workload, you have to be able to, to, to bring the, the access method they do understand like NFS. Sure. Does, does an Oracle database support REST API? I'm sure it will at some point. Who knows? I don't know. I'm not an Oracle guy. We'll get we'll get Steiner just, in, in here. Just curious, because I mean I know that right now it's the recommended is NFS, right? I mean, yeah. so it's if you're trying to move something like an Oracle database, even if it's just something that's like a, a scratch space, right? You know, this yep. is this is my dev database. You know, and with the drive towards containerization and DevOps you're starting to see more and more of that where you need to have a centralized location where people can get to things in the way they're used to getting to it. But I think that goes to how object versus file versus block works, right? Right. Block you can request. I want, you know, from block 12 to block 64, yep. right, from from that particular LUN or whatever it happens to be. File, you're requesting a chunk of a file, right? I don't remember if it's like four or eight kilobytes or something along those lines. Um, uh, it depends on what you... I think the amount options are really going to determine... Okay, that, so, but, but yeah, you're requesting a piece of a file, whereas object, you don't, you, you get the whole object. You don't get a part of an object, you don't get half of an object, or, or you, you get the entire object. So with a database where you're talking files that are gigabytes in size, right, a simple update would be downloading an entire file, updating that one little piece, and then re-uploading that entire file. So it doesn't doesn't necessarily work well. Now, that being said, of course, there's newer databases, newer systems, right, the NoSQL systems that uh, cater to that type of operation. But uh, a traditional ACID-compliant RDBMS, 
no, not not object. Yeah, I know Azure's trying to do some stuff, doing partial gets and puts in Azure Table and Column Store. I haven't played with it though to know how that works. But yeah, I, I agree with that, Andrew. That's that's a, a nice clean way to break the three down. Cool. Well, let's talk about futures then. What is next for NFS? All right. So right now we got NFS v4.1, and that's getting some pretty decent uptick. I mean, especially now that more clients are supporting it, you know, seeing ESX supporting it is a big step. Next on the pipe is NFS v4.2. Um, Red Hat 7 actually came out recently with v4.2 support. Ooh. So um, the problem with that is, is that the protocol itself, I don't think the, the RFC is complete yet, right? So it's still in the works, but it's it's there. Um, as a storage company, you know, on, you know, NetApp isn't going to support 4.2 yet. There, you know, there's, there's going to be a little ways down the road for that. Um, RDMA is remote direct memory access. So basically, what we're doing is we're pulling the CPU out of the equation, and we're trying to do memory to memory over the network. As memory sizes grow, this is becoming more and more feasible, and you're starting to see things like uh, was it Intel's 3D? Yeah. So companies are starting to really think about Next this point. as a as a viable option for the future of you know applications over the network and what this is going to do is it's going to offer zero copy support and allow you to just increase the overall speed and throughput of your networks by removing some of the middlemen that are causing some of the latencies that we see storage vendors are looking at this as a viable solution for problems that we see with nas you know whether it's CPU bottlenecks or disk bottlenecks, because I mean, what you're doing is you're you're also taking the disk out of the equation a little bit too, and it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of how MVRAM works, right? So you're you're actually caching up your reads and writes, and then committing them to disk after a certain period. Yeah, usually where I hear RDMA mentioned is with the in-memory databases, so SAP HANA and and the ones of those of that breed. So if you ha if you're using one of those and you know you're using one of those, right? If you are uh, then this can be a really big thing, right? Really boost performance and boost capability. And, and like anything you see that comes out that's new, people are going to try to f fit them into the specific workload they're trying to use. So people are going to either come up with stuff that's really awesome or they're going to come up with something that's really bad. But it's going to take it's going to be a trial and error thing where you start trying to plug in RDMA and use cases where you find that it might not just apply just to databases it might apply to other things that are that are useful such as the cloud story right because i mean that's that's going to help boost cloud performance i would imagine yeah it may that'll be interesting because RDMA is it, it requires direct hardware offload so it'll be interesting to see like how does that work in an AMI do we do we still get that offload um, does does it function you know that Stuff to keep to keep an eye on, you know, around the corner. Well, well, given the concern over cloud being, you know, one security and two performance. Yeah. If people can find a way to address one of those two problems, they're going to try it. And if if RDMA fits, then they'll try that. Cool. Well, that's that's a pretty good introduction to the NFS protocol. Uh, the past, present, and future. Why don't you tell us a little bit, I'm, I'm assuming that you're going to Insight, and so if you are, tell us about what some of the sessions you're going to be doing there. Right, so I'll actually be at Insight Las Vegas, and I'll be at Insight in Berlin, and I'll be presenting two sessions. Um, one will be for partners in field only. It'll be a deep dive into SecD, which is a security daemon, um, basically talking about everything you wanted to know and didn't care about with security daemon. And then the other session will be, and that's actually session 1881, if you were interested. And then 1884 will be the multi-protocol session, which is talking about multi-protocol NAS and unlocking the mysteries of multi-protocol NAS. And, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about 
NAS, multi-protocol NAS being difficult. And we're going to try to dispel some of that, talk about best practices. Ooh. In addition, we're doing a lab for multi-protocol where you're actually able to get into a lab environment and run a NAS multi-protocol session with no LDAP. And then you go in and set up LDAP, which is going to show you that it's easy. Nice. And then you're going to go in and run it with LDAP and see how much better that is for you overall as an experience. Oh, that sounds cool. That does sound like a great lab. Is that going to be available on Lab on Demand after Insight? Uh, I imagine it will be. That's what they generally do with the Insight Labs. Cool. So, Very cool. Well, if you are planning to go to Insight, you can register at netapp-insight.com. If you're not going, where can somebody find information about NFS? So I, as the NetApp NFS TME, I am tasked to write technical reports, and I have multiples of those. So I have the NFS Implementation and Best Practice Guide, which is TR4067. This covers mostly cluster data on tap. There's a little bit of seven-mode information in there as well. TR4379, which is the name services best practices and cluster data on tap. If you're doing anything with name services, this includes DNS, uh, LDAP, or NIS, you need to read that TR when you're doing your implementation or transition. Um, TR4073 is secure unified authentication, and that is NFS v4 with LDAP and Kerberized NFS in cluster data ONTAP, and we also cover some 7-mode in there as well. That also includes some links out to GitHub repositories I've created with some you know, just basic shell scripts that can help you make your implementation and, and roll out easier. Nice. Um, there is also TR4063, which is the PNFS technical report. It talks about PNFS, how it works. Um, best practices, that sort of thing. And it links you to some of uh, Bakash Chowdhury's uh, TRs that talk about actual performance in PNFS, real-world use cases with EDA environments. Cool. Well, I'll be sure to put links to all of the TRs on the show notes, in addition to a link to your website, which has a hilarious name, Why the Internet is Broken. Oh, it's <laughs> not the name of it. It's Why is the Internet Broken. Why is the Internet Broken. Dot com. <laughs> Dot com. And Justin is a, a prolific blogger, I will say. So yeah, I, I, I wish I had your discipline. I, uh, I, I think it's just a matter of I have way too much free time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can, you can give some of that my way. Yeah, you'd think I shouldn't have that kind of free time with a toddler, but I, I somehow I find the free time. I, I don't understand it. No, it's, I, I can tell you what it is. You spent years in support. You're used to going... 100 miles an hour, 20 hours days, man. Yeah. <laughs> You're sitting in TME land like, <laughs> what is all this like? I've got 10 minutes with nothing to do right now. This is crazy. Like, I could totally knock out a blog post. Yeah. Right. So after I got out of support and came over to TME, I felt like I had a form of PTSD, which is post-traumatic support sin- disorder. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I really was like, I got to answer this right now, right now, right now. And then after a while, you're like, wait a minute, I don't have to do that anymore. It's pretty awesome. Nice. So, yeah, check Justin out at whyistheinternetbroken.com. Also, follow him on Twitter at NFSDudeAbides. All right, well, let's talk email. We've got a couple of, we've received a couple of emails, so keep the emails coming, and uh, we really appreciate all the positive feedback. We got one email specific to the VDI session that we did. Glenn, why don't you read that email to us? Yeah, sure. So, uh, Mr. David reached out to the team. Uh, it says here, podcast team. Just listen to the VDI podcast. I found it very interesting and impressive that the project was rolled out so fast. But after reviewing some of the TR docs that were referenced, I have a couple of questions. Fantastic. Thank you for sending those in. The benchmark tests in the TR docs seem to be done with Fiber Channel Protocol. What protocol did NetApp use for their deployment? And what kind of latency slash throughput IAP drop-off, if any, is there in the protocol uh, if, if it was NFS or iSCSI? If using all flash FAS for VDI, what advantages does VVOL bring? 
There are no multi-disc tiers anymore. Everything is flash. Does using VVOLs with VDI just add complexity? And then his final question. In the deployment that NetApp just did, I'm curious if the developers had SSD drives in their own dedicated workstations previously. I think it would help dedicated SSDs in the physical PC would be faster than shared AFF array. Do you have some desktop development metrics like compiles went from 300 to 200 seconds with the new infrastructure? I understand that a Additional benefits of a central VDI deployment like security and operational efficiencies, cost, etc. But if the end users don't get the additional benefits in terms of speed, then buy-in from them will be real hard. Thanks for your time, and I love the show, and it's great to have you all back. Dave. All right. Well, since Chris Gephardt is too cool for us, he's actually at the Foo Fighters concert right now. Chris, just, I hate you. Yeah, you're just jealous. Very jealous. <laughs> so I grabbed some time with him before he got on a plane to share some of the answers, and so here's what Chris had to say. Yeah, so uh, I guess we can break this up into three different questions. The first one uh, was around what is the benchmark difference between Fiber Channel, iSCSI, and NFS? So during the VED deployment, uh, the engineering support team chose Fiber Channel as the, as the preferred protocol. That was, uh, that was something that we, I didn't have a, a decision in, but uh, based on the fact that we've written many technical reports around NFS uh, in, in previous years, we chose for TRs 4307 and 4335 to use Fiber Channel, uh, really to highlight the fact that you know, regardless of protocol, um, performance and overall uh, you know usability is is the same regardless of the protocol. We can still offload the cloning operations to VAAI, uh, regardless of whether you're using NFS or Fiber Channel. It really comes down to customers' com- comfort level in what they believe. Um, Works best in their environment. If they have a, if they've invested in a, a large fiber channel infrastructure, then it is totally acceptable to use fiber channel. So it just sounds like the uh, NSUP operations team wanted FC, and you know, I, I our stance has been pretty clear on this. We yep. like whatever protocol you like, and in this case, the internal customer, customer zero, said we want fiber channel. We have fi- fiber channel, so we're going to use fiber channel. That makes sense to me. Yep. Uh, so I guess the second question in this email, uh, if using all flash paths for VDI, what advantages does VVOLS bring? VVOLS actually brings a, a lot of benefits to using uh, fiber channel in that uh, you remove a lot of the metadata operations that are associated with link clones. In a link clone environment, when you're using a hypervisor snapshot as the basis of the clone uh, for non-persistent desktops, you're actually now, instead of creating a VMFS data store and putting virtual machines on top of that, each virtual machine is now multiple LUNs that makes up the VM. And so you're getting away from that layered uh, VMFS layer, and therefore your performance is actually potentially better in that you're not having to do these read and writes of the, the Delta file or SE sparse file within the virtual machine before you do the actual I.O. operations. So VVOLs can actually potentially increase performance. Do you have any comments there, Sully? Yeah, I'll also add in that you know VVOLs changes how snapshots are done on a virtual machine. So if you have a self-service portal for your, your desktop users, if you are rolling out a big patch update, whatever your use case happens to be where you want to take snapshots of those virtual desktops, right? it is now a NetApp sysclone, a single file flex clone which means there is no penalty for performance, right? The delete is not a, a copy back or a playback of the I.O., right? It's It acts just like a NetApp clone, right? A NetApp snapshot. So, yeah, very, very useful in that respect as well. Awesome. Okay. And then uh, the last question here, 
I'm not sure I completely agree with your premise here, Dave. Um, I don't equate uh, SSDs and a laptop to nearly the same thing as an enterprise-class all-flash array, uh, but, but the point is taken. So uh, in our recent deployment, what was the performance uh, from an end-user perspective? The jury's really still out on that. We're still collecting a lot of data. The moral of the story here is if you're a storage company, you can afford to you know, oversize and think about that later. If you're not, I would look at using a tool like Liquidware Labs to understand what the users are doing before you get into the actual deployment, because only then do you really, you know, make the right decision. And there's, you know, two options. You either oversize and you pay too much, or you undersize and your users are not happy. And so using tools to give you uh, or information to make data-driven decisions is really the best way to do it. Yeah, so it sounds like, uh, you know, listen, I can speak from my own personal experience with VED. I, I have not noticed any kind of performance issues at all. Then again, I'm working in there from a FlexPod context, so I'm not doing code compiles or anything like that, right? I'm, I'm mostly like putty and, and yeah, sure. Michelle yeah. And, and that sort of stuff. But, you know, for me, it's, it's been just as fast, if not a little bit faster than my laptop. And the network access... Uh, into the resources that I'm utilizing, of course, is much, much faster because I'm not coming over my consumer-grade laptop connection. You know, it's just RDP into the my, my, my BED VM, and then from there, it's it's 10 gig on the CAN uh, on the back end. Um, but, but it sounds like the bigger picture, you know, honestly, we're still collecting that data. We'll have to circle back around with Chris at a future point and, and see what, what that looks like once we do have those results. Yeah, and I'd say that, you know, kind of like what Chris said, but it's the security around that you get with a with a VDI solution is probably going to outweigh the little, if any, performance difference between the SSD and the and and your and your solution inside of VDI. Well, not to mention just the protection offered from an enterprise storage system, right? Yeah. I mean, not the least of which is RAID, and then you have Waffle, Snapshot, SnapMirror, SnapVault, right? All, all of the other, right? Everything else up through the stack. So. So, David, I hope that answers your question. Uh, if you'd like to email the show for, for f- further follow-up, please do. And to the rest of the listeners, you know, t- this is what we're here for, guys. If you hear something on a show that catches your interest and you want to know more, drop us a note. We'll get the experts in here, and we'll, we'll, get it, we'll get it straight from the horse's mouth. Very cool. All right. Well, Justin, once again, thank you for coming. We really appreciated the conversation. And for those of you listening, if you want to get in touch with Justin, find him on Twitter at NFS Dudabides. Thank you. All right, well, that music tells me it's time to go. And so if you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email at podcast.netapp.com. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a tweet at NetApp. And as always, to stay up to stay up to date on all things NetApp, subscribe to the podcast at iTunes or SoundCloud by searching for Tech on Tap. If you like the show today, leave us a review. And until next time, bye for now. All right, folks, we got to get packed. We're out of here. VM world. You guys ready, boys? I'm ready. ready. I'm not ready for a 6 a.m. flight, no. Well, next time, don't book the early flight. (laughs) Yeah, this is all your fault. Yeah, I I learned my lesson the hard way. Yeah. Sully the monster. Yes, he is. All right, guys. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah. Hi, Bobby. Hear what, AFF?